about Universal Marsters horror movies from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and beyond. This week we're talking about The Mummy, released in 1932, starring Karloff! Karloff the Immortal. My name is Gary. As always, I'm joined by James and Mike. And Mike, will you hit me with that fresh Latin beat? Boom! Monster Rally, the Monster Rally rap, it's the Monster Rally, the Monster Rally rap, Monster Rally, it's the Monster Rally rap. Boris Karloff gets all wrapped up in bandages on the Monster Rally rap in the Monster Rally, Monster Rally rap. He didn't need to be all wrapped up because there was only one scene and they used the dummy and the Monster Rally, it's the Monster Rally rap. Mike, I feel like my rap fell apart when you stopped beatboxing. Yeah, I was just, yeah, I just, I lost my groove. I'm sorry. I agree. I, pro- <laughs> I promise you, James, I promise you, because I know you're the biggest fan of my my rap stylings. For mm. our next episode, which is The Invisible Man, I will have a fully formed rap song written in advance. That's Lord. That'll be a nice change of pace, but let's worry about The Mummy. We have two weeks for me to form these rap songs, and I literally make them up on the spot. I know you guys are surprised by that out there in podcast land. You're like, wow, that's really, really a lot of talent. But I made that up on the spot. I am like, B-Rabbit, that's me, B-Rabbit. That feels like a lot of passion and thought are put into them. So I think our our listeners would be very surprised to hear that you make them up on the spot. I feel like like they're very bad, and I think that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can do better. So I'm excited to see you actually put words on paper. You know what Podcast. would be really cool, and I just thought of this. What if I wrapped the plot summary? No. <laughs> I don't think our, no. our listeners are ready for that. I know I'm going to do that for, I don't know, pick whatever one of the weird mummy sequels is. The Curse of the Mummy's Tombs Ghost or something like that. <laughs> the Mummy's Left Pinky. When we get to that one, I'm going to be wrapping the plot summary. A personal fave. The Mummy's Left Pinky? Yeah, because yeah. it's... Uh, <laughs> when I remember of the Mummy sequels, they're all derivative of the other sequels. But not this one! This one sure is original. So we're going to talk about The Mummy, written by Bram Stoker. <laughs> I mean, 
mean, kind of, right? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I that joke a lot on this podcast. Guys. Listen, I, 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 I told this to Gary yesterday, uh, but I think the Mummy is the best adaptation of Dracula that Universal ever made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think we're gonna get pretty deep into that. I don't think we're necessarily breaking new ground when we say that there are. Um, let's see. Let's say. Uh, you know common interests between the structure and the plotting between dracula and the mummy but you know we'll we'll get into that nitty-gritty we'll get into it for sure so 1932 is when the money become mummy comes out when exactly mike i don't i didn't look up the date (laughs) interestingly enough it came out on my birthday december 22nd 1932 christmas movie this is what the fam you were bringing the family to the the theater you know christmas day christmas eve christmas break to go see the mummy Oh, yeah. For sure. Wow. This is now I'm always going to think of this as a Christmas movie. Christmas in Cairo with the mummy. <laughs> it's, it's I'll go see now. that movie, Christmas in Cairo. We can make that Christmas in Cairo. And uh, I did scream his name because that's how it is presented. Karloff! <laughs> the, what is he? The Magnificent? The Undeniable? The immortal? The, the what? Uh, Isn't it The, the Immortal? The, the uncanny, the, the uncanny, the yeah. astonishing. Yeah, Carl yeah. He's he's one of the X Men adjectives. He's, uh, yeah, I believe he's an X Men. Uh, he is Morph, right? Or no, that's Lon Chaney. Indeed. So Karloff's coming off, and Universal and Carl Lemley, the whole crew, were like, "Yo, Frankenstein was a huge hit. Mike loved it. Mike Kenny thought this was the best movie he's ever seen. We gotta make another Universal horror movie. We gotta ride Karloff to the top. What should we make next?" Um. Dracula. Oh, what did they decide to make next? It appears to be the mummy. <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't always the plan, was it? No. No, in fact, it wasn't. Um, well, you know, the genesis of this project is a, is pretty interesting. Uh, you know, the craze for Egyptian folklore was really sparked a whole decade uh, before the mummy's premiere with the discovery of King Tut's tomb and its fascination really started to inform uh, the architectural designs of famous movie palaces of that day. So jumping ahead, the screenplay uh, that ultimately morphed into the mummy was conceived by Nina Wilcox Putnam, um, who had previously done Sitting Pretty um, in 1933. Her script was called uh, Cagli- Cagliostro, Cagliostro. And that was about a historical figure who had claimed to have lived uh, for centuries. Yeah, uh, interesting thing about Nina Wilcox Putnam is that she's actually very well known for drafting the first U.S. income tax 1040 for the IRS. So uh, a hero, a villain, uh, I've heard it both ways. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Yeah, so she scripted it, but then it was heavily revised by John Al uh, Balderston, who contributed to both Dracula and Frankenstein. He also did 1935's Mad Love and uh, 1936's The Last of the Mohicans. Um, He was also, interestingly enough, was a New World correspondent who covered the uncovering of King Tut's tomb. Um, Other working titles for the film at the time um, that were considered were Imhotep and King of the Dead. Man, King of the Dead would have been a badass name. I like that, yeah. I mean, the mummy is cool. Like, were mummies a a part of pop culture, or did did this kind of introduce the the shambling wrapped in toilet paper image of the mummy? 
Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, like, you know, going back again, like, it was really that discovery of King Tut's tomb that really became world news, and so many people were so, uh, kind of fascinated by that, because dating back to that, there was a lot of historical, you know, just fear about a curse, uh, you know, kind of, um digging up King Tut's tomb, like all that sort of myth and folklore was coming up in the press at the time. So there was, you know, understandably a lot of hesitance to even like, uh, you know, dig up King Tut's tomb upon its discovery. So that led into the whole idea. But yeah, like 1932's The Mummy was really the first time where we kind of saw that myth put to screen. Was there ever anybody else considered to play the lead role of Imhotep other than Karloff? Or was this written specifically as a Karloff vehicle? Um, everything that, I, that I've seen written um, in the history, it seemed like Karloff was the obvious choice just coming off of the, the massive success of Frankenstein. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think anybody was ever uh, really seriously considered you know, and same thing goes for Carl Freund, who directed this one. You know, we spoke about it a lot in our first episode. He was the cinematographer on Dracula and also reportedly ghost directed um, a decent chunk of that. So the the style that he put on that made him sort of an easy choice to gravitate to his own project with uh, being the mummy. So, yeah, I don't think that anybody was ever seriously considered considering you know, how much Karloff kind of proved himself and, of course, the critical reception to that performance. Did Freund, was he drawn to this material or they're just like, hey, you're directing this? Yeah, I think it was I think it was a mixture of just that. I mean, he you know, he was a, a noted cinematographer. We spoke about that, uh, you know. Uh, lensing certain things like Metropolis with Fritz Lang. Um, and, you know, he gravitated and made The Mummy, but his career, um, you know, post The Mummy, he only directed several more times, uh, notably 1933's musical comedy, Moonlight and Pretzels, and then, of course, uh, Mad Love, which I've mentioned several times before, uh, before he just returned permanently to being a cinematographer. And ultimately earning an Oscar with 1937's uh, The Good Earth. What's really interesting is that the tail end of his career, uh, Lucille Ball was desiring audience participation on her new sitcom, I Love Lucy. So Freud devised this multi-camera setup that has since become just absolutely common practice in the industry for sitcoms. So as a result, Ball made Freud her chief cinematographer for Desilu Productions, which spanned 132 episodes, the entirety of I Love Lucy, as well as 126 episodes of Our Miss Brooks. So pretty fascinating and storied career post The Mummy, post directorial credits. What the hell is Moonlight and Pretzels? <laughs> it is a film that I have not seen, but apparently from uh, what I understand, it's a pretty good one. Yeah, it's it's quite fun. I mean, I know that uh, it's at least one of Gary's favorite. Uh, it's one of the two of them are one of Gary's favorite things because that mother, that mother lover loves pretzels. Yo, true story. Right before this podcast was, uh, we started recording this podcast. I made myself a nice soft pretzel in the oven, and we watched the Pretzel Day episode of The Office. All just coincidences, to be honest with you. But wow. I guess it's you know, <laughs> I got these Trader Joe's soft pretzels. They're really good. They're better than super pretzels. I'm gonna say it. Well, why don't you you know send some to your co-host so we could be chomping on them while we recorded because that's I, horrible audio 
<laughs> no, but they're soft pretzels. They're not like big crunchy pretzels. Uh, also, yeah. uh, Super Pretzel, not a, not a sponsor, but they can be. They yeah. can be. They Super Pretzel, be. if you want to sponsor the Monster Rally Podcast, we'll be called the Super Pretzel Monster Rally Podcast. We'll be called the Super Pretzel Podcast if you want. Yes. I don't care. Just give me some of that pretzel money. We are easy sellouts, please. We, we, would, <laughs> we uh, would happily enter the pocket of Big Pretzel. <laughs> Absolutely. We could change the focus of the show just to talk about the pretzels of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. <laughs> so, uh, for all of you who have not seen, you know, that are new to the Monsterelli podcast and obviously have not seen The Mummy, Gary, weirdly enough, has a really, really interesting breakdown of the plot. So, Gary, take us away. Wow. Mike is Mike. Mike took over as the host of the show. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, we're co-hosts, right? He really, fucking, he really fucking scooped you there. Mike is trying to move this along. Mike, I had so much other background stuff to talk about. I didn't. <laughs> I was about to say, well, please enlighten us. <laughs> All right, are you ready for the plot summary, James? This give me is a beat. My favorite the podcast, actually. I just want I I await to hear Gary's breakdowns of the plot. Wow, that needs to be a drop in every episode now. Brendan Fraser plays Rick O'Connell. <laughs> Wrong mummy. Sorry. Don't you tempt <laughs> us. Tom Cruise plays... <laughs> Yo, for real though, I, I know that's not the mummy we're talking about today. It's weird that we'll get to this, and I'll remember this when we talk about that mummy. His, na- his name is Nick in that movie. So we have Nick and Rick and Imhotep. Those aren't the same names. Yeah. The year is 1921, and Sir Joseph Wemble, played by Arthur Byron, leads in expeditions with his pals Dr. Mueller Van Helsing, played by Edward Van Sloan, and <laughs> Ralph Renfield. They have found the mummy of ancient high priest Imhotep. Imhotep was buried in an unmarked casket along with a treasure chest. Dr. Mueller says, Guys, you really shouldn't open this chest and read the scroll of Thoth inside. So, of course, that's exactly what Renfield does, which brings Imhotep back to life. Imhotep steals the scroll, and Renfield just thinks that's hilarious. Imhotep then spends the next 10 years hanging out in Cairo, doing things like buying a house, probably getting a job. He shorts some stocks and gets really rich, and then he takes the name Ardith Bay. Imo Bay shows Wemple's son Frank and Professor Pearson were to dig up the sarcophagus, that's a tough word, I did not spell it right, by the way, of <laughs> Princess Aksunaman, who's actually Imobe's former lover. Imobe was actually mummified alive when he tried to use the scroll of Toph to revive Aksunaman. For trying to defy the gods, Imobe was mummified alive in what is easily the best sequence of this entire movie. Frank falls in love with socialite Helen Grosner after only meeting her once. Helen is drawn to Imobe because she is the reincarnation of Anksunaman. Mueller figures out Imobe is Ardentep by showing him his reflection in a mirror. Imobe uses uh, his mummy superpowers to kill the senior Wemple when the senior Wemple tries to destroy the scroll, but Frank is protected by an amulet given to him by Mueller. Imobe draws Helen to him and shows her entire life story on his really sweet pool TV and reveals that he plans to mummify her and bring her back to life so she can live with him forever. 
I mean, nailed it. <laughs> I'm not done yet. I just, I just can't get past the just pool. Just so far, though. Like, it's so on point. Where was I? Oh, Imobe shows Helen her entire life story on his really sweet pool TV and reveals that he plans to mummify her and bring her back to life so she can live with him forever. Helen says, nah, bro, and prays to the statue of Isis, which comes alive and destroys the scroll of Toph, causing Imobe to crumble into dust. We assume Frank and Helen live happily ever after, after following their very long courtship of about an hour as credits perfect there was a man that was a that was a lot huh yeah yeah there's i think a lot there's a lot of things that happen in this movie we start in 1921 which i thought was really cool because we finally have a a time stamp for one of these movies Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the one that is not connected to any of the other ones no no they (laughs) dated this one and said hey guys it's the 20s um so clearly this was like a a playoff of the like you said mike the king tut thing right because that happened in the, the early 20s i believe yeah Sure. Mm-hmm. I, I'm willing to bet there was more than three dudes there that dug up King Tut, though. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there was like what? What a scoop! If you were one of the three people that were like, "Hey, how does nobody know about this?" Wasn't one of them Geraldo? Wasn't like that was Geraldo's thing? He unearthed no, that, King was, Tut. Uh, that was uh, what's his name's vault? Al Capone. Oh, Al Capone's vault. Yes. <laughs> full of full of nothing. Um. Go ahead. Well, I mean, there is. I mean, what is it? Was it wasn't a King Tut where there's uh, supposedly an actual like curse? Like everybody who was part of uh, part yeah. of the team that dug it up. Uh, yeah, that was a big grisly end. Yeah, that that was a big thing. Like, when... I mean, is is that actually true? Like, they're the cast of Poltergeist or something like that? Did that really happen? Well, ju- just in the in the in the reality, like the true. Um, uh, digging up of king tut like there was a lot of like the potential of a curse like that many people were fearful in doing that so i think that the idea of that supposed curse mixed with the actual excavation of king tut really kind of you know planted the seed for what would become the mummy is it safe to say that maybe that curse is real because i'm willing to bet that everyone who was there as part of the excavation of king tut is probably dead now I mean that's I mean that's fair. That's yeah, I mean <laughs> that curse uh, caught up to them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, no, I mean there was there was something about it where uh, a bunch of the people. I think it was. I think it was King Tut's. Yeah. Um, there's like a like a major curse about that. Uh, but granted, it was also you know it was in the tw- early twenties, so. You know, medicine was getting getting better, but it wasn't great yet. And <laughs> <laughs> what did they know? Yeah. So yeah. we have right from the beginning, we have uh, Sir Wemple and um, Dr. Mueller, played by Edward Our, Van Sloan, making his third appearance in a row. Um, boy, playing, Eddie Van Sloan. There he is, playing pretty much the same character as. And look, oh. we're going to make the obvious comparison to Dracula oh, many he's times. Van, he's Van fucking Helsing. Yeah, he's playing Van Helsing in this movie, and he pretty much played Van Helsing in Frankenstein too. Yeah, and he plays and we, Van and, Helsing. And David Manners is playing the same role that he played yeah. in Dracula, the uh, Frank Wemple character. Like those two are complete. But the, again, the fact that you're seeing these faces pop up again and again in these films is not, 
you know, it's it's just indicative of the studio system that was really in place there. Like these guys were obviously contract players for Universal. So obviously seeing them in one appearance in a horror movie just kind of made sense in those days to like, well, you're going from this film to this film. And it was just very simple, accepted. Like that's that's just what it was. But again, they're playing the same roles, but. Whereas like David Manners is very one note and we'll get into that later. I think Edward Van Sloan can keep playing this role again and again. And I always believe him. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and, and if this was made today, he would just be like the reoccurring Van Helsing character in every one of these movies. That would be a great movie series, right? Like if they had Van Helsing who was in <laughs> each movie and was fighting the different universal monsters, like they should make a movie about that. Yeah, like if if it was like a sexy young Van Helsing, who, yeah, with like like a huge jacked man, perhaps. like a, a huge jacked man. <laughs> um. <laughs> or like if you were going to start a universe and it was going to be dark, like a dark universe, <laughs> right? And you're right, like, let's yeah. cast the biggest movie star in the world. He could yeah. be our connective tissue. And going into that, you're like, he's going to play Van Helsing. That's going to be badass. And then, spoiler alert, James, I know you haven't seen this mu- movie. He is the mummy in the mummy. It's crazy. We got to get we got to get a petition going up on change.org. Universal has to hear our ideas. Absolutely. Wasn't Charles Dance supposed to be the guy connecting all the dark universe stuff? No, it was Russell Crowe, actually. Well, I know he was going to be in it as well, but I think it was like Charles Dance's elder vampire from Dracula Unbound. Was supposed it's to Dracula show up. Untold. Dracula, yeah, Dracula Untold. Yeah, Dracula Untold. Yeah. Listen, which post, post recording of the Dracula episode, we did finally just, we finally <laughs> did realize it was Luke Evans, but we're going to continue to hold true that it was Jerry Butler. <laughs> Listen, Jerry Butler was in Dracula 2000. Correct. With, that's, where, that's where our confusion came with from. With Jersey's own vitamin C, and we will never apologize for being wrong. <laughs> uh, I can't wait till we get to Dracula 2000 because there's a scene with vitamin C and <laughs> let's just say I don't know if it's certain. vitamin C or vitamin D cup. Oh, well, oh God. I need to edit that out. Karen, make a note to edit that out. <laughs> but let's get back on track here, gang. <laughs> I think what I thought was uh, one of the most shocking things was we see the mummy pretty much right off the bat. And I'm like, oh, they're going there. He's right there just chilling in his his, his casket, standing up there. Um, it's kind of unfortunate that this is the only time in the movie he is full mummy because he looks awesome. Like Boris Karloff looks amazing and and he looks really cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I fully agree. Um, and this that th- that is which is like I, I know it may seem cliche to kind of piggyback off what film historians have said you know, time and time again, but it is the best sequence and easily the most chilling of the mummy is that sequence where you see him in the actual mummy wrapping. And it is really brief and you wish that you saw more, especially when you know that, um, Jack Pierce's makeup that he applied to Karloff took longer, um, than the Frankenstein makeup uh, did. It totaled about eight hours and even the Art of Bay makeup where he's just more of like an aged man took four. So the mummy makeup itself took wildly longer and everything is detailed down to like his arms and everything. But you don't see that. And it's interesting because according to Karloff, Carl Lemley Jr. and Carl Freund nearly came to blows over the film's opening sequence. Lemley, to your point, Gary, and I think most of ours, Lemley wanted 
the introduction of the mummy to be seen in real in several stylized close-ups similar to uh, the Frankenstein monster, while Freund insisted on a less is more approach and Bromwell Fletcher's screams of madness to fill in what we don't see, which ultimately prevailed. And it's funny because Fletcher, who plays um, the Ralph character, he reportedly hated being known exclusively for his mummy role, which ironically made him iconic, a role that was only made possible because uh, MGM loaned him out to Universal. So, Mike dropping knowledge bombs there. Hey, hey. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I definitely can appreciate the less is more uh, idea, but when you only get one scene of the mummy in the movie called The Mummy, maybe you should go with the more is more uh, technique. <laughs> <laughs> that is one opinion for sure. Yes, yes. Well, maybe that's maybe that's us looking at it through through retrospective glasses. I mean, the concept of the mummy as we know it, as we talked about, wasn't really established until after this movie. So, yeah, I would I want to see more of him in that mummy role. But really, the mummy is just Karloff in general. Yeah. And I mean, like to save us all kind of time, because you're, you're as we progress with this podcast, we're going to keep saying these things like ad nauseum because it's just inherent in the DNA of the Universal Monsters legacy is atmosphere. We're going to always compliment the atmosphere in any and all of these films, but that can't, you know, it's not always going to just like dominate and overrule any sort of grievances or shortcomings that these films have, which we're going to get to because the mummy, in my opinion, has several of them, but to stick with that, um, there is great atmosphere in this film. Um, noted Hungarian artist Willy Pagani was tasked with bringing the Egyptian murals and hieroglyphics to life that really bring this amazing air of authenticity to the production. So it has all that going for it. But again, I think that it would have been nice to see more of the mummy in that opening sequence. But I think it is interesting because the sequence does work really well. It's a super, super effective sequence. So I don't want to harp too much on what could have been for me because it is a, it is an effective se- sequence. And retrospectively, like what, you know, what restraint Carl Freund have where like you had Karloff in this amazing Jack Pierce makeup all done up and in its glory. But to just, you know, make that call of being like, no. We're going to show it this way, very discreetly off camera, have, you know, people's imaginations fill in the blanks. And for that reason, it's kind of why I think we're talking more about it as much as we would want to see a little bit more of what that mummy looked like. And let's not forget about the fact that the uh, the one time that we really see the mummy, we see his face, upper body and everything. That was a dummy. It was a mummy dummy. It wasn't even Karloff as the mummy when we see the mummy. Yeah, that's a good point. They used a, a dummy for a lot of the far shots. I think Karloff was only in the makeup for that close-up shot when he wakes up. And maybe when he takes the scroll, which we don't even see. We just see his hand take the scroll. Apparently there was a, a shot filmed of him in you know his full glory taking the scroll and scaring uh, Ralph. But that was you know, the artistic choice to, to edit that out, but. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I feel like, you know, after, uh, Gary's brilliant, uh, plot breakdown of the film, uh, we've talked to a degree of, uh, the cast, a lot of reoccurring cast members like Edward Van Sloan and David Manners, um, certain things that I do 
I wanted to bring up that I thought were interesting was uh, co-star Zita Johan, who plays Helen in the film. She was an actual believer in the occult and devoutly uh, believed in reincarnation. She was apparently paid $7,500 per week for her role, and she consistently butted heads with director Carl Freund. Freund, like, refused to not give her a chair with her name on it on set. Uh, so they were constantly butting heads throughout the production. Um, it was it was a very uh, tense uh, working relationship, whereas uh, she absolutely adored working with Karloff, but she always sensed um, like a wave of sadness emanated from his eyes, but she couldn't ever say enough nice things about working with Karloff during this. And I'm glad that you brought up uh, Z.D. Johan because she is phenomenal in this. Um, she was treated like complete shit by Freund, uh, even so far as, um, she never really understood why, uh, her guess was that since it was his first, uh, film as a director, he was looking for an easy scapegoat. And since she wasn't that big of a name, he's like, oh, I can, I can blame the woman. And, uh, so even in even in uh it was a pre-production meeting that they had uh you know i guess as she got hired where he was like oh there's gonna be there's gonna be a nude scene you have to you've gotta you're gonna have to be topless and she like knowing knowing like he's looking for any reason to call her a problem or anything like that she's like yeah sure let's do this i'm i'm down for it yeah, and, if you can uh, get it past the censors or something. Right. If you can get it past the censors, not a problem. But she was so phenomenal in this movie. And I got to say, she was checking a lot of boxes for me. And, like, I don't know. I think she's the original, uh, you know, uh, creepy goth girlfriend in Hollywood movies. <laughs> that, yeah, James. Uh, I'm just going to go there. Damn you, Carl Freund, because, I mean, she's a smoke show. And if that scene had made it into the movie... To get more points for me in the ratings. <laughs> well, you're a big creep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. So anyway. Oh. Oh, um, you know, yeah, I think we talked a lot about the opening scene. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and, and for all of the contention um, that was between Freund and uh, Johan, it, it has to be said that Freund did deliver the mummy under schedule and under budget. He delivered this film uh, by October 30th of 1932, and it only cost a whopping $196,161, bucks, like, which is crazy, just absolutely crazy. We mentioned when talking about Dracula that Lugosi got paid $3,000 for the entire entire movie, that entire production. Um, and we just said that Johan got paid $7,500 per week. And this was at least, I think it was 27 day shoot. So that's three or four weeks that she was probably on set. Um, was she a big star before this movie? Like wh why did she command such a high salary? I wonder what Karloff had gotten paid. We probably could have researched that, but that sounds like a lot of money for 1932 money. Uh, yeah, it, it is a lot of money. Um, we have, yeah, it goes without saying, and it has got to be noted that uh, Zita Johan was a really respected Hungarian actress of the stage and the screen. The stage was really her home, and you didn't really see her. She didn't have a huge prominent um, screen life, but that wasn't because of her talents. 
completely the opposite, as we're indicating here. She was a, a phenomenal presence and a really ga- uh, great actress. She appeared um, the same year with uh, Edward G. Robinson in Tiger Shark, which was helmed by Howard Hawks. And then she would go on uh, the following year to play the title role in The Sin of Nora Moran. And following the success, which The Mummy was a modest success, it earned um, 30, 370000 in rentals with critics largely divided over it but that still was a really respectable sum and you know for all intents and purposes a success so after the success of the mummy uh carl emley jr wanted to continue working with her and uh although she had had a really good um relationship with lemley she basically told him like i'm done i'm not doing any more films for you like basically stick it because she there were plans for her to do other films you know who's to say maybe she would have appeared in a more universal monster movies but she made the conscious decision of being like this movie thing is not for me and she only appeared uh sparingly in you know a few more performances after that but she uh it was it was a conscious decision on her part just want to jump in real quick uh, i looked it up Karloff's salary for this was $3,750 per week. So she was making more than double what Karloff was making on this picture, even though he was clearly the, the star and he was, his name was above the, you know, on the, on the marquee there. So I think that was interesting. Um, and also to your point, Mike, like I, when I watched this, I'm like, I could see her playing the bride of Frankenstein. Like they could, she could have been in their, their wheelhouse of, of actors that they kept going back to. Sure. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's it was it was really interesting to see that she had uh, she had the power on her contracts to pick and choose the movies that she was doing, and she had some like, real real major movies. Uh, you know the scripts given to her, and she's like, "No, nah, I don't want to do this. No, 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 this isn't for me. No, not this one. You know what, yeah. guys? Don't worry. I'm just gonna go back to the stage." <laughs> Yeah, she sounds like a badass. Let's let's be honest. Like, I think we'd all be like, "Yeah, this chick is cool." Like, even, yeah, she could fit in even now with like modern Hollywood. I could see her being that awesome. like, you know, it's in an, a bunch of indie movies, and then pops into a blockbuster when she feels like it. Like, and has creative control. Sounds like a real badass uh, for an actress in the 1930s. Are you talking about Brie Larson or sort of, Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of getting into the nitty gritty, I, I know before we kind of uh, started recording, we were independently talking about how this film and this episode in particular, we had a lot of opinions on this film. So I'm excited that this uh, episode in particular is going to be a healthy kind of balance of, you know, hopefully factual and uh, information as well as like our own personal opinions. So uh, kind of going off of that, I want to say right out the gate that the film's opening titles with the the miniature sphinx and the three-dimensional mummy title card for me are among the best openings for uh any of the universal monster films um again uh we're gonna get more into the structural similarities between dracula and the mummy but as as visually cool as this opening title um credit sequence is you right off the gate already see the similarity because we once again hear Swan Lake over the opening titles, just like Dracula. <laughs> yeah. I, I did make a note of that, that how, how cool those, those opening titles were and that we heard Swan Lake. And I thought maybe it would just be like their, their stock music that they use to open their movies, which they didn't use it in Frankenstein, but I thought that would be neat. Um, speaking of music, I think this would be a good time to talk about that. This is the first time we have background music in any of our Universal Monster movies. Uh, aside from the theme. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny that you said that because that was the first thing that I noticed uh, while watching it. Um, you know, uh, specifically for this and not just for entertainment. And I gotta say, this time, I don't know if it added anything because the <laughs> the edits for it were bad. <laughs> let's just say that right. Let's just say that right off the bat. And whatever we all think about this movie, the editing is very bad in this movie. Uh, the sound editing. Just the editing in general, scenes just kind of like start to cut off while someone's finishing a sentence and like it just has weird quick edits. And I know it was a different type of editing back then, but I didn't feel that way in Frankenstein or especially Dracula where scenes seem to linger a little long. Here the scenes are are really brisk. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I think I, I think this is the sort of perspective that we're bringing into it as being big monster kid fans. But these are like, you know, common things that we're, you know, we're three episodes in now. We're constantly talking about the music, you know, the films that don't have background music that use a score that don't use a score, which ones are effective, which ones are not. So it's funny that, you know, the, this this theme and topic, con, con, uh, you know, tends to be brought up again so it's it's a very interesting dynamic um again you know now that we're we're talking once again about the similarities between dracula and the mummy it, it's it's like they're they're just like spiritual you know uh siblings for better or worse you know like we mentioned uh, the usage of swan lake over the opening credits to um the film's beginning in the layers of they're monsters where characters are driven mad by the very sight of them. Um, screenwriter John L. Balderson, who also crafted the stage play for Dracula, is undeniably following the same blueprint, going as far to, you know, we've mentioned it before, but again, Van Sloan and Manners are oddly even playing the same character roles in The Mummy that they did uh, in Dracula. Additionally, you know, uh, Van Sloan's Dr. Mueller, uh, Hans Manners, um, a relic to protect himself at a certain point in the film uh, to protect him from Imhotep, which is no different than him handing him uh, the crucifix to be used as a defense mechanism against Dracula. So it, it just, it continues to go on and on with the similarities here. Look, you know, it, it, I'm going to make a comparison that I don't know if anyone's ever made before. It's Carl Lemley and Kevin Feige. Both of them made the same movie about 30 times. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me I wonder wrong. how Lemley's uh, pocketbook is in comparison to Feige's, though. <laughs> you know, Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, when you, uh, have, uh, when you got something that works, you know, no need to fix totally, it. Totally, totally. So let's jump into some of the other characters. So we have uh, Mueller, of course. We talked about Edward Van Sloan, who just brings it in everything. Frank? What's this guy's deal? Is he, is he, he keeps saying it's in the name of science. Science, but what I don't understand what he is. He's just a, a bro who's like really into Helen. Do you guys know anything about this character? I mean, he, again, it's it's like he's just a total transplant of his Dracula character again. And and you know, I'll, I'll give credit where credit is due. Where like you know, we're saying like our boy Eddie Van Sloan always bringing the heat, like always dependable in this role as like the true believer of the occult. David Manners, although I, I'm willing to extend an olive branch here, he is admittedly better here than in Dracula, but it just this film just proves again that he's really one note. He just shows little to no range. He's always delivering lines with this like mild chipperness <laughs> where it just feels like not 
it doesn't feel appropriate and he just really overindulges with these like romantic asides that he gives to Helen so yeah he like his character again is just like a transplant he's just like an aide to you know uh, Eddie Van Sloan basically again you know we're doubling down on the fact that or tripling down or quadrupling down quintupling down the fact that this movie is a better version of Dracula than Dracula ever could hope to be. But I mean, if you if you think about if you think about these the three Universal movies that we have watched so far for this podcast, you have a really cool monster, right? I mean, we talked about it. Lugosi, you know, he's he's got that magnetism, right? You got Karlov as the monster. And he's phenomenal. You have Karloff as Imhotep, and he's phenomenal. And then who's the who is the dashing male lead? Mayonnaise, milk toast, <laughs> boring, plain, David generic, manners. Wonder Bread. You know, with the crust cut off because crusts are a little spicy. And you know, you got at least at least this time uh, to you know to keep up with you know the 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 monster to keep up with Karlov to keep up with Eddie Van Sloan at least this time we had Zidi Zidi Johan who is the first female character with agency with a purpose who has any kind of power behind her and like she is effectively the first leading lady for these movies that matters I would agree. Yeah, she's the most impactful. I think we we all agreed we liked. I don't remember the actress' name who played Elizabeth in Frankenstein. She was she was good. She I think she yeah. played the part well. But Zeta br- brings that presence, like you said, James, and she really is. Aside from Karloff, the lead of this movie because um, Frank really plays literally no role in any of the action of that takes place. He doesn't save her. He doesn't do. He actually is supposed to protect her, and he decides to take a nap. So he Yo, literally he straight up sucks. Yeah, he does nothing but be creepy. Right, yeah. He takes a nap, just like how uh, when uh, Eddie Van Sloan and David Manners were on Dracula's case, Dracula leaves the scene and goes to take a nap in yeah. the coffin. People are always <laughs> taking naps at the worst possible time. Yeah, what now, are they, Yeah. Like now, going off of that, I think we're all in full agreement with Zeta Johan. I think I think she's the standout here. She is undeniably. I think we can all agree she is the strongest female character that I think we've seen thus far in a Universal monster movie. Jimmy, this, po- <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is now a Zeta Johan standcast. All right, guys? and I'm here for it. We're yeah, I'm Monster Rally brought it. to you by brought to you by Super Pretzel and the Estate of Zeta Johan. <laughs> Now, if I if I may, to be a little controversial, now Jack Pierce's makeup effects are rightfully owed tremendous credit for much of the film's impact. Okay, hear me out. Carlos' performance, however, you know, romantic or less intentionally deadly his intentions are. I've just always found the performance, especially, you know, when he's Ardeth Bay, particularly, I just find him to be a little too monotone and a little creaky here. Mike, he's so much better in this movie than he is in Frankenstein. That so is, much better. That is blasphemy. <laughs> you got to think he's playing a mummy who's 3000 years old trying to acclimate to modern society. He's essentially a zombie who talks. 
he's that scene with him and 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 Helen staring at each other for forty five minutes. Really good. <laughs> he he's creaky because his jaw is creaky because he's a fucking mummy, he's Michael. Right? He's got he's got the click in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, Frankenstein. He was like he. He was good in Frankenstein. I think he's great in this movie. He's a leading man in this movie. Look, I'm not I'm not saying that the performance is bad by any means. I just find that I just find that his delivery and I get it, it's all that. But okay, he's to, be fair, to be fair, he's been he's been Art of Bay for a decade by the time we catch up with him. So he's acclimated, and I get it. Like we're we're seeing Karloff in his element as a true actor where he's actually spouting dialogue and having more intimate sort of interactions with characters. I just always find the character a little creaky, and that lends itself to where I think that this film is a bit imperfect. That being said just kind of treading over um, material that we spoke about uh, the introduction of Karloff in the mummy wrappings. We can all agree that's, that's the standout sequence of the film and it's great. And then I would, I would also uh, add that uh, when Imhotep is being wrapped alive during that flashback sequence, that is particularly um, claustrophobic and really scary to boot. I think that that sequence is really effective. And then just that that uh, the recycled uh, close-up shot of Imhotep uh, gazing with his eyes being illuminated are are really a close third to with little else in the film coming close to any of those really Hell brief yeah. moments. Wowzers, McBowsers, right there, Mike. I'm gonna say we're three movies deep into this series, and we're not giving ratings or reviews yet. The scariest scene in any of these three movies is the scene you just mentioned when he's getting wrapped up as a mummy. Like the 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 scene that to me felt like holy crap, that's really scary because it felt real. Like that happened mm-hmm. to people. That was great and that was really well done. Um, I said in this in this plot summary, I think it's the best scene in the movie. You know, it's on par at least with the opening. Um, I don't know, man. I think he's he's good in this movie. Like he's what I also thought was interesting. Boris Karloff is five foot eleven, so that is my height. He wow. looks like he's ten feet tall in this movie. Yeah, he has he has a towering presence on screen for sure. You know what's what's interesting is that you know Mike Mike is wrong and he says that Karloff <laughs> sucks in this movie. He does and not. Gary's right where he says Karloff is great in this movie. I'll give Mike credit. Yeah, sure, that is a terrifying scene, and yeah, I think. Probably the scariest scene in all of these Universal monster movies. But what we haven't talked about yet, what's really important, and I think you guys can both agree, is that this is the least horny movie that we have watched so far. But I will say it is that love is at the center of it, unlike the other two movies. That is a really valid point. It's the least horny, and it is the mo- it's kind of a like a, a romance movie. It's it is a romance trying to get his woman back. It's eternal romance. It's an undying love. It was rude yeah. for those crazy kids. Yeah, it yeah it, yeah all that's at the at the heart of this film. It, it's a it's a tragic romance, really. Um, so yeah, I get that, and that's where this film um thematically separates itself a bit although that's still a you know a little bit of a transplant from dracula like there's that romanticism um to an eroticism from dracula you don't get you don't sense that eroticism so much in uh the mummy of course but there's that romantic angle to it um now again his, his mummy for the record 
for the record, I do not think that this performance is bad. It's not. I, I, I just think performance was shit, you, man. You, you guys, guys, you guys are constantly Carlos, this. Karloff. He hates him. <laughs> I love Karloff. I love Karloff. I think I, I don't want to get into too many compare and you know comparisons, but no, I just think that his performance in the Frank in Frankenstein is the monster. It's like it's incredible. It's magnificent. It's better than this one for sure. There's goes, merit. Ah, that's all he does in that movie. Oh gosh. Ah. In this movie, he's got this cool pad. He's got this guy who works for him, and. Oh, What's you mean that the newbie, <laughs> and they keep referring to him as. It's problematic the first time that we have a a colored actor of any you know a, a POC actor in here. Uh, his what's his name? His name is the Nubian. The Nubian, yeah. The Nubian. <laughs> and um, I just had a couple notes I wanted to go over to talk about some some yeah. specific scenes when they're digging up Aksunamen. Aksunabayul. Oksana Bayou, yeah, when they're digging her up, there's a bunch of guys, like, they're they're just passing dirt in, in baskets up the hill. But those yeah. baskets are empty. <laughs> <laughs> have dirt budget, man. You have to get in, you know, listen, under under time, under cost, baby. Can't be filling those up with baskets. Or with a supervisor on this. There. They're, they're clearly doing it on the set of Last Crusade, because that is the exact same place they shot the ending of Last Crusade, right? It has to be. It looks just like that same temple. And two, um, it's, it's the 1930s. Is that really the most effective way to dig a hole? Yes. In the 1930s? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Industrial Revolution had happened. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have roads there. Not not in Egypt. Come on now. Um yeah, and there and throughout the production, there actually were was uh, several scenes depicting uh, Zeta Johan's character being reincarnated throughout the ages um, that were later scrapped for pacing, <clears throat> as well as they were just they didn't they made little to no sense with Imhotep's appearance being in them. Additionally, this is funny because this is like in the the limited credits that we have. There's a credit. There's a character credited as Saxon Warrior, played by Henry Victor. He appeared in all these scenes that have you know as we know got scrapped. So that explains uh, why he's not in the finished film. But they kept his name. <laughs> In the credits, which is funny. So as you're watching that, there's only like so many people credited in the cast, and at the bottom you're like Saxon Warrior. That sounds badass. Where's this guy pop up? And then we don't see him. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. That's one of the one of the cooler scenes in the movie. Anyway, is when they go to his his sweet pad and he he's like, check out my TV, lady. Like he tries to impress her with his pool TV. So it's a jacuzzi that shows movies. I mean, that's. <laughs> trademark the Monster Rally podcast. Yeah, I don't remember yeah. what trademark last time, but a projector inside of a jacuzzi sounds really, really cool. And, and he's like, also, it's a time machine. He, the mummy, let's just talk about this right now, get out of the way. He has really undefined powers, yes. which I, I kind of struggled with. I like to know like what my characters can do. Um, like Frankenstein. Okay, I understand what Frankenstein is. Dracula, I understand what Dracula is. The mummy's like, he can control people with his Green Lantern ring. Who knows what he can do? <laughs> uh, and he can turn into a sandstorm. Oh, shit, wrong movie. No, um... <laughs> I, yeah, that's a good question, though. What what are the mummy's powers? Um, he's got... He can force choke people. Uh, he yes. can force sleep people. Is he... Is the mummy a Jedi? 
he might be a Sith Lord for sure. I, he's a priest, so we have to like that's what they describe him as an ancient uh, priest. And what are what are Jedi's if not hippie space priests? I mean, can priests <laughs> in general? Is that something priests can do? Is that they can like control people? Oh, we're gonna get uh, well, <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe maybe you should have paid attention more in Sunday school. You would have found out. <laughs> yes. That well, I again, I I feel like I don't know. I mean, to me, I just feel like his abilities are not too dissimilar um, to Dracula's. I mean, it's probably Carlos' fault, isn't it, Mike? It's probably Carlos' fault. Yeah, it's probably Carlos' fault, definitely. So yeah, I just I personally don't see that there's much. Um, there's not too much of a difference between Dracula's abilities and the mummies. I mean, like we said, he has he has a psychic. Um, you know, ability over people uh, that spans farther distances because obviously he's looking in the goddamn jacuzzi pool <laughs> and he's reaching people. Whereas every time that we've seen um, Dracula, he's sort of face to face with people. So the mummy definitely has, you know, an enormous range to weak minded people that he can control. And obviously he has strength and, you know, other uh, mystical powers. Mulder, are you telling me that this movie is just Dracula again? I think that's what I'm saying. And one of the best Dracula scenes in the movie is when Van Helsing and <laughs> the mummy kind of have their face off, and Van Helsing's like, oh shit, you're the mummy. Like, he, I don't know how he figured that out, but he did. It's like, hey, we're going to go kill each other, right? Yeah, cool. <laughs> but we're going to be gentlemen about it? Yeah, of course. I like cool. that Glad we could have this talk. Like watch back. I you thought, watch your back. I thought Karloff acted very well in that. <laughs> Oh, this is this is just gonna follow me the whole episode. Now, if I may, because uh, at least for me, this is where we're gonna get into what I think is the biggest shortcomings of this film. So, if you guys would just allow me to kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent, I this is you the thing that I'm. <laughs> I'm I'm because I'm I'm very curious. I didn't get too deep into it, but this is like the the like the bulk of what I had to talk about in this film, and I'm curious to see if you guys agree or disagree. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, listeners, <laughs> here's the thing. My issue with this film is the mythology surrounding it. So, if I may, establishing Imhotep is resurrected by the Scroll of Thoth. His pursuit to revive his forbidden lover, the princess, to me, it just seems to overcompensate too much with an expository plot that largely lands with a little too many plot holes. So if I may. Ultimately, we know that Helen, throughout the plot, uh, we find out that she's half Egyptian and she bears a striking resemblance to the princess. Are we all on the same page here? We all agree with this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. in the movie. Okay. Okay, so she falls under Imhotep's control after he believes her to be the princess's reincarnated soul. Fine. I'm on board with this so far, okay? Revealing evidence of their past reincarnations, Imhotep's plot is now to kill Helen, then resurrect her to reunite her soul with her body. This all registers simply enough for me, if not still a little muddy, and should have been the extent of this particular plot device. Yet... Um, as he tries to kill her, if you're following, Helen has accepted now that she's two different women and prefers the modern one, which ultimately feels complicated for the sake of things. Like that little, uh, you know, injecting that just feels like, okay, now and she, she's she's registering and admitting that she is two different people now, but she's more at home in the comfortable or in, in the modern age. Okay, I, I, okay, sure. I'll go with this, I guess. 
narratively, I think that Helen should have just been written as like a noted Egyptologist or at least fluent in the goddamn language because she is half Egyptian so that it wouldn't seem, um, you know, that it wouldn't seem like uh, her sudden fluency in the language to Edward Van Sloan and David Manners doesn't come as like this, you know, weird shock to them that now she's speaking fluent um, Egyptian that, you know, that way it's just not like another extension of Imhotep's control over her. Furthermore, if she was just naturally educated on the history of her surroundings, her plea to Isis at the end would be as easily understood and accepted than what I think is this messy reveal that of her recognizing herself as two people with two different pasts of knowledge. So as we know by you know the, the climax of the film, Helen is rescued when she recalls her ancestral past and calls upon the goddess Isis to come to her aid, which then destroys the scroll of thought and breaks Imhotep's spell of immortality on himself. Are we still following listeners? These plot mechanics for me, cause the pacing to suffer. I, th I think that's simplifying the matters here, using Helen as a human sacrifice, simply a human sacrifice to resurrect the princess because of her Egyptian lineage and her, her you know, similarities would have been far easier narratively without losing any of the impact of Imhotep's intentions. That's just me. I think that the mythology gets very muddy and very messy, and I think that that's, I think it just overcompensates for itself. Listen, Mike. Everyone knows I'm the fucking guy who gives the plot summaries around here. Okay, <laughs> that's my job. It's the one thing I do. You don't need to gussy it up with all your fancy language. And also, furthermore, Michael, I'd like to refer you to a friend of mine. His name is Steven. Steven Soderbergh. Ever heard of him? Well, he just made the exact movie you just described because that's the plot of that mummy. <laughs> No, totally. No, like on, on some real shit. I'm not mad at Mike, guys. Like you might think I'm mad at Mike, but no, Mike and I are boys. It's all love. It's all love. But you're right, Mike. The ending of this movie is super confusing. Like, I'm mad I at mean, Mike. I mean, really. Jesus, <laughs> please, Jimmy. <laughs> Listen, I was mad at Gary last time. I'm mad at Mike this time. It's fine. fine. I'll be yeah, mad so at myself cool. every other day of the week. <laughs> oh, that's, you want to talk about it? Are you on the I, show? I'm you want to air that chat grievance? Truly, though, am I alone in this? I just feel that th that all of that kind of plotting gets very messy and it's just like, frankly, unnecessary when you could have simplified. I'm not saying simplifying it, you know, quote unquote, dumbing it down so that it's easier for us to understand. I just think that simplifying it would have just made it a better film, <laughs> frankly. I agree that it's uh, it is messy. You're You're not wrong in any way, shape or form there. I wouldn't say that it's any messier than Dracula because, again, this, these are the same movies. And then also I think it's because part of it, at least, is probably a holdover from that original script about the alchemist who kept himself alive for thousands of years before he became a mummy that put a curse on himself. It's probably one of the holdovers, I would assume. Maybe we could find that out, but not right now. Um it's messy, it's not great, but it's not the messiest thing that we've seen with these movies so far, and it will certainly not be the messiest thing that we see by the end of this podcast. Just going to sleep. 
<laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I'm gonna hold, uh, stay steady on that. Like, I, I disagree. Like, I, I think it is one of the more messier things that we've seen in the three films that we've covered so far. I mean, just like, just like for, from the get-go of that. So, Imhotep, he, <laughs> it's just like what the, I, it's, it's like just so confusing for the sake of it. So he wants to kill Helen just to resurrect her, or he wants to kill Helen just to, uh mummify her and then resurrect her properly i'm like this like <laughs> just doesn't just seem like an additional step for the sake of it like and so she could live forever yeah that's but that's how i interpreted it like she so if he kills her and mummifies her brings her back the same way he was brought back by reading the scroll of top now she can live forever with him because if she's in her human form like obviously she has an expiration date um so i think that's how I interpreted it. Uh, I get what you're saying, Mike. Like, yeah, it, it's super complicated, but I think that's what was happening. Yeah, I, no, I get it. I just feel like it's 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 overkill. I feel like maybe it's something that we're, we that we lost out with those scenes of seeing, um, you know, Helen coming back again and again and again and again. Um, I think that would have been over. I think I think so I because think it's. Cool. I think what it show those those scenes would show like her spirit, uh, his, her spirit is immortal. It resurrects uh, at you know after she dies each and every time. So she's she has been consistently coming back since um, Imhotep was mummified, and what he plans to do is to not just you know immortalize her soul, but her body as well. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, there's yeah, there there's an argument to be made for that. I mean, I I think that they made the right call, uh, uh removing those scenes because again, like I think it just continues to like my initial point. I just think that that would have been overkill if if you're going if you're going on the idea that she's reincarnated and she's now recognizing that she's two different personas, uh, so to speak. Like I don't think like just to kind of be subjected to like scene after scene of her being reincarnated in in several different time periods i would have just been like a, i mean i get that like I, I certainly get it i just i just think that the the plotting and the mechanics of that is where it gets messy right but at the same time i kind of feel like if carl freund is gonna make her uh act uh face to face with a couple of what was it lions or tigers that yeah, maybe tigers, she, tigers, think, yeah. maybe they should have kept that fucking scene in there while she was like <laughs> two feet away from a fucking violent animal and everybody else was behind fucking cages. Yeah, we didn't get a lot into what well, we did talk about Freud uh, being an asshole. Let's just put it out there. He was not nice to her. He, he, he stuck her in with a bunch of lions for a scene that got cut. But that flashback scene has some interesting things in it. And and overall, is this movie. This is the most violent movie we've seen um, mm -hmm. in this series so far. Did mm -hmm. you guys see when that guy got speared through the stomach? Yeah. Did you guys see that? Yeah. That he was gruesome. Like, I did not expect that. They show all death, for the most part, off screen, except for when uh, Wemble dies. And he is an extended death. What I'm saying is this movie is, is way more violent than I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. For sure. <sighs> um. So I, I feel here, like huh? <laughs> I I do I feel like we uh I feel like this is the first episode where we're very like evenly divided um over it I you know there there's with any Universal monster movie there's a lot of merit to them there's a lot of 
again, atmosphere, which we're, you know, always going to insist that there is, but I don't think that it, you know, it, it doesn't rule, um, exclusively over, you know, the, the, you know, the, the mass content of, of the film. So I, I think that there are plenty of shortcomings with this film, you know, least of which that it's just so, you know, structurally and thematically similar to Dracula, which, I think Dracula is a better movie, frankly, although, you know, we obviously had our own um, issues with that. But yeah, I just think that the mythology I have a problem with, much to my co-hosts, you know, plea to you guys thinking that I hate Karloff. I think Karloff is good in this. I think he's better in Frankenstein, but I just find the the monotone delivery to kind of shortchange him. But yeah, it's, I don't know. So Mike's made his opinion pretty clear. Let's let's wrap this up. Talk about ratings. Our scale is five being the highest, one being the lowest. Mike gave Frankenstein a ten last week, breaking our own <laughs> rules already. Um, it was a four point five out of five. His his exact words were, "I'm going to name all of my children Frankenstein, like Adam Sandler does in Big Daddy." Remember, his <laughs> wife's named Frankenstein. His dog is named Frankenstein. He lives. At 1414 Frankenstein Boulevard, he went to the town to specifically request they change the name of his street. They didn't, but he still got his own street sign that says Frankenstein Boulevard. Mike loves Frankenstein and hates the mummy. Mike, give us your overall <laughs> feelings that I think we know and score one yeah. to five on 1932's again, The Mummy. Again, The Mummy there's a lot of good stuff going into it, but you know, there's no sugar coating it. I mean, compared to, uh, Dracula and Frankenstein, I think that there's a noticeable, uh, departure in this one. Again, ad nauseum, we can keep saying that the, the atmosphere is great, which it is. It's plentiful. It looks incredible. The production dine is spectacular in it. Jack Pierce's makeup is once again on point. One of the best works he's ever done in a history of many. Um, but again, it's just the mythology kills it for me. It's too similar to what has come before it. Um, and for all those reasons, uh, it's not one of my favorites, although it's, you know, it's pretty universally regarded as, you know, a lot of people's favorites. It's not for me. So uh, I feel pretty comfortable giving it a 3.5 out of 5. It, there's still plenty of good in it. But again, it's just uh, The Mummy is not uh, one of my favorites. James. It's interesting that Mike gives this movie uh, the rating that I gave Dracula, uh, seeing that this movie is Dracula, but better. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I think I think Karloff brings it because this is the first time that he had a chance to really fully act, besides just be a physical presence. Because as strictly a physical presence, I think that he's better in Frankenstein. I'll give you that. I think he's better as Frankenstein's monster. Um, but you got to look at the whole package here. And I think, I think his monotone delivery is adding to the performance. Um, but that's also kind of how he just talks anyway. He's <laughs> just kind of a monotone guy. So it's not really, he's doing anything special with it. Um, I think the set pieces uh, are cool in this one. The music is, you know, the first time we get background music, it's pretty whack. Um, The director is a stone cold asshole, but he knows how to 
frame a shot to make it look good. Um, you know, Van Helsing kicks ass in this. Uh, I'm sorry, Eddie Van, <laughs> Eddie Van Helsing. Uh, <laughs> um, and and I mean, Zidi Johan. Zidi Johan is the first leading lady of Universal Monsters. Um, she kicks so much fucking ass in this movie. Um, that again, like I'm, I think that those background scenes really could have helped this story. If nothing else, we would have got more scenes of her being awesome. Um, so I think that that is a lost, you know, that that's something that we lose here, uh, whether it does actually bog it down or, you know, who knows? There was issues between Freund and Johan. So, sure. Hey, listen, it could have been, oh, oh, these scenes with her are bogging the movie down when, in fact, they were not. I mean, it's very possible. Mm-hmm. Who can say? I wasn't there. I don't know. You that being said, um, I'm I'm giving this a four seven five. Wow. Four and three quarters. Four and um, three quarters. That is high. It's the highest line. recommendation we've given, except when Mike gave Frankenstein his 69 team. stars. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, um, my, my ratings are strictly like I only will do a whole number or a point five. I don't I don't I think like anything like. Well, that's the thing. I too technical. The it's out back here. Of, no rules. Just right. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite movies. Um, but it's not quite there. It's not the best one that Universal has. But I think. As a standalone movie, when, when when you don't factor in the rest of the, you know, the rest of that series. So, like, I definitely have to put this higher than Frankenstein because there are better Frankenstein movies. That being said, even though this is the only Emotep movie until we see Beefrage fighting alongside uh, Rachel Weisz. Um, you know, this, I think this is a better movie than the other mummy movies. Is it the most fun? That's not the question here. I'm saying this is the best mummy movie until 1999, uh, mummy, uh, with Brendan Fraser. Um, <laughs> I can't give this a five cause there are too many issues with it, but it is almost perfect. As for me, I think this is the. Third best movie called The Mummy. <laughs> and we'll get into those because I, I have strong opinions about that Tom Cruise mummy flick. But uh, here's the strengths of this movie. You have two phenomenal leads in Boris Karloff, who I we joked about. it. I do think he's better in this movie than he is in Frankenstein because he's given more to do. Um, and I, I get it. We were teasing Mike. He's very, very good in Frankenstein. No doubt about that. I think he's more comfortable in this role, and you can tell. And then we we spoke at ad nauseum about Zita Zita Zohan, who uh, is my, am I saying her name right? Zita no, Zohan. Han, you're not. Zita's, Zita Johan, who is phenomenal. Speaking of, don't mess with the Zohan. Sorry. Yes, Sandler. that's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> oh, what I got Adam Sandler, Sandler on the brain. On the brain. Yeah, um, she's <laughs> phenomenal in this movie. So we have two incredible leads. You have a great production design. The sets in this movie are fantastic. You know, the, the small attention to detail we see in the museum and in the crypt and everything is wonderful. The script is not terrible. I think the script, ha- 
was a good script, but got edited, especially the, the scenes we talked about with her flashbacks, which I do think would have added. Here's my problem with this movie. It's Freund. I think the director, this being his first movie, um, he was not capable of pulling off this movie. I was so incredibly disappointed with his cinematography in this movie when I felt like he was the star of Dracula with his cinematography. I think focusing, and I'm just making this up, I have no idea if this happened, but him focusing more on the directing aspect than actually setting up his shots, having those great lingering shots that we got in like Dracula would have really done uh, wonders for this movie and added even more to the atmosphere. And he wanted to keep this so tight and so brisk that the story, it gets muddled and scenes are, are edited very poorly. So with that being said, I didn't know where to land on this movie. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought that to James's point, there's a lot of strengths. To Mike's point, there's a lot of things that really didn't make sense or didn't work. So ultimately, I'm going to give this the same rating that I gave Frankenstein, which is a 3.5. Nice. Um, like I said, I think it's the, the weakest movie called The Mummy that I've ever seen. But it's still not a bad movie. And I think we're three for three with pretty solid movies so far in this series. I don't think anyone could debate that any of these movies are, are inherently terrible. I think those no. movies are probably coming, but yes. none of these are terrible yet. Well, to be to be fair, and again, you know, this is this is a little bit away, but I will say now, since we're, you know, on arguably the most iconic of film in this particular franchise, and although I did give it a 3.5 out of 5, I will say that um, the sequels to this franchise are, I think, among the most uh, fun of any of the sequels in the Universal uh, monster franchise. I think like that they, like yeah, I, I just think I just think that they got it. Uh, you know, they they knew um, the essentials. I mean, um, the majority, if not all of them, are like sixty to sixty-five minutes. They're very tight, but they're very fun. They go to different locations, such as like New Orleans. I just think that overall, um, the sequels to the Mummy are some of the most consistently fun out of any of them. So I will say that that has that has a lot going for it as you know the the franchise in a whole. I 100% agree with you. Um, like I said, I think this is the this is the best of these original Mummy movies. I'm not saying it's the most fun because I can't wait to get a little Zatarain's Mummy going later on. It's <laughs> I'm fucking pumped for it. Uh, I just personally I I love this movie, um, and I know that definite that listen that three seven five is or that that uh, that four seven five is not objective uh there's a lot of there's a lot of heart added to that score um but i i definitely agree i think we're, we're gonna get a lot more fun coming with the mummy franchise i just i think we lose quality and i think they do balance though yeah i'm excited i'm excited to tackle them with you guys I really am too, and I'm excited when we get to the. And look, we based we created this podcast to watch the 1999 Mummy, and we just needed justice. <laughs> yeah. to get we there. got exposed. God damn, that movie is awesome. We're putting so it right here. Time. That's getting a five out of five for me. I'm gonna tell. I don't care. That movie's perfect. <laughs> I'm breaking. Best. I'm breaking the scoreboards with yeah, that sweet. one, baby. Yeah, I'm giving it the Mike Kenny Frankenstein rating. It's one hundred. It is very fun, and yes, uh, I, I think it's it goes without saying that once we get through 
um, the universal, the proper universal monster legacy. Uh, we'll, we'll get uh, into some contemporary uh, thrills because. Or uh, we yeah. just do that every week. We just watch the <laughs> Soderbergh mummy. There's so week. many layers to unravel. Now, here's there. the question. Here's the question. And just no talk, no talk. I've already let it be known that I want to do the Scorpion King series on this show. Mm-hmm. Do we do the G.I. Joe movie series? Because it's the same universe as the Brendan Fraser mummies. Let's not. <laughs> Let's not tie ourselves into anything involving that right now. I do. I do. I'm not saying no, but I'm because it is a it is a horrible movie. Uh, well, I like the GI Joe movies. Oh, listen, I'm not I saying do. that I don't like it, but it's bad. I like listen, them. Genuinely, the fun, listen, the fun factor is way up. The quality is way down. It evens out. There it is, folks. All right, guys. Anything else you want to add as we put a bow on 1932s? The mummy. No, I think this, I do think this is the perfect place to wrap the mummy. this episode up. Oh, fuck you, Mike. <laughs> there I'll it let's... is. Hey, <laughs> hey, wrapping y'all. up episode three of the Monster Rally. Really say wrap it up? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, as, we, as we wrap this up uh, with bandages and toilet paper, um, make sure you follow us on Instagram, Twitter, uh, at Monster Rally Pod. Yep. Yes, on Monster Facebook, Pod. too. Uh, check yes. us out, Monster Rally Podcast on Facebook. Um, you know, we appreciate we appreciate you guys uh, liking our posts, sharing our posts, you know, retweeting all that. Um, subscribe, you know, leave reviews. Please all subscribe that. to us. Uh, leave reviews if you can, depending on what podcatcher you have. Uh, Even if they're bad uh, reviews, like, like you know, <laughs> listen, if you give us five star reviews. Maybe we'll read them on air. I'm not tying Michael this into your Frankenstein. I'm not tying tying this into anything, but maybe Gary will wrap your your review on air. Who's to say? One hundred percent. I'm guaranteeing that right now. If you write it, give us a five star <laughs> review. I will turn it into a rap song. Um, oh man, you know. <laughs> uh, tell tell your friends. Tell your family. The cool oh, one. Yeah. Uh, tell your enemies, uh, the cool ones again. Uh, <laughs> but uh, exactly. we, we really do, you know, um, we're only three episodes in. Uh, so we're trying to grow that fan base. And we appreciate every last one of you that are listening. Uh, you guys are all super dope. Um, and, you know, let Mike know. Please let Mike know how horrible his take on, you know, Karloff is on this because Karloff is great. Uh, I don't playing a mummy, Mike. Uh. <laughs> Gosh. A 3,000-year-old mummy! This is never going just to like, end. <laughs> he's playing someone who was newly born, so he was childish. I I get that. He's playing the opposite in this movie. <laughs> I can't I can't wait till we get to the Bride of Frankenstein so you can see these so-called accusations being whipped at me to just be confronted with the complete movie. opposite. But Frankenstein that being said... Two different movies, Mike. <laughs> just like this and the mummy... 1999 are different movies. And The Mummy, 2017, are different movies. <laughs> I, I have Ladies and gentlemen. I think each of us is... Well, there's three Mummy movies, right? Three movies called The Mummy. There's probably more. But there's three movies we're going to cover called The Mummy. Each yes. of us is going to like one of them as our favorite. Well, yeah. Well, uh, four, I think, because yeah, the Hammer, the Christopher Lee Hammer one, that is The Mummy. Ooh, Who's Christopher oh. Lee Hammer? Is he like a rapper or... <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Is he related to actual Cannibal Army Hammer? 
Yes, oh, that's correct. Is Army <laughs> Hammer related to the Arm and Hammer? By the way, like, like company. I think he is. He's he's a he's uh his family is like an oil. They they're like a big oil family apparently. Man, oil man. Well, <laughs> that about wraps us up. Thanks for giving us a listen. I said wraps it up. That's a. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We will see you for episode four. Yeah, we'll see you for episode four. We're talking about the Invisible Man. You can't Ew. see him. Invisible Man. Check out John Cena and tune in for episode four. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Later.